apologize in that in the, in the morning, uh, last Monday morning when I was putting the orders of worship together, I thought I was going to work a little bit more in Ecclesiastes 9, 4 through 10. But as I was talking to one of our members about during the week, this is you know, more of a topical thing. And so there are going to be places that we go to that are uh, perhaps a little bit more instructive to us week by week. So turn with me, instead of Ecclesiastes 9, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll begin our reading there. <clears throat> After 1 Samuel 7, we'll turn over to Jeremiah 7. So here now, the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 1. And the men of Kirjath Jearim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath Jearim that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented. After the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Baalim and Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel. In Mizpah. Now turn over to Jeremiah chapter 7. <coughs> Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye truly amend your ways and your doings, if ye truly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place and the land, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But now go ye... Uh, but go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Thomas Boston and Thomas Watson. We have 
two Thomases chasing us down this morning with quotations, or this afternoon. Thomas Boston writes, Lament after the Lord. This brought him back when gone. 1 Samuel 7, 2-6. The tears of the Lord's people and their sighs after the Lord go very, go very far with a tender-hearted father. There are many things we cannot help. Mourn over these, the sins of former and present times. Alas, it is easy to speak of these by what it is to be affected with the dishonor done to God by them. And then Thomas Watson will write, Doth Christ offer his body and blood to us in the supper? Then with what solemn preparation should we come to so sacred an ordinance? It is not enough to do what God hath appointed, but as he hath appointed, prepare your hearts unto the Lord. 1 Samuel 3. The musician first puts his instrument in tune before he plays. The heart must first be prepared and put in tune before it goes to meet with God in this solemn ordinance of the sacrament. Take heed of rashness and irreverence. Those are good things to remember. Good and helpful quotations from some of our beloved fathers of old. So last week we spoke uh, more broadly with regard to preparation, didn't we? And we said that it's not illicit to think of preparation to meet with the Lord on Saturday night and Sunday morning. Those things are not illicit. But that they are not the answer. The answer itself is living in a prepared way before the Lord. Living in that way that we don't come to a foreign activity on Saturday night. A foreign activity on Sunday morning. Rather that our callings, our duties, our recreations, the pleasant things of this world. All of them are continually brought to the feet of the Lord in service to Him. I didn't say this last week, but I have said it before. Some of you may not have heard it before. Um, you know, we, we think of, we have our vocation, we have our avocation, right? And then we have things that we call that are recreations. There was a song that... Um, Cat Stevens sang a number of years ago. Of course, it wasn't his song. It was the old Morning is Broken song. You'll, you'll remember it. And um, he didn't know how to handle that last line, God's recreation of the new day. So he misspoke. He didn't, he, he didn't know what, what actually was being communicated by the original author of that song. When we say recreations, we want to put them in their proper context. That this is... God's way of reconstituting and reordering our nature so that we might be put into that, uh, that way of better service. We're not made, beloved, incessantly to work, 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 work. We're not made to do that. We will wear out. We will wear out before uh, our time, all other things being considered as equal. The Lord has given us times of what we call recreation. That is setting us more in line with our created order in service to the Lord. So there are times and the Lord grants us these times and we need those times. But we want to claim them, don't we? We want to, we want to appropriate them or appoint them so that they are not foreign to our worship and service to God but are sweetly in keeping with it. This is the kind of thing that we talked about last week. That really the entirety of our lives must be spent in a kind of preparation, a kind of living before the watching God, serving Him, even in those things that we would call our own pleasantries. That we don't love them over much, that we don't use them in a way <coughs> that push them eccentrically out of shape so that they're no longer useful to us or serviceable Instead, what they are is harmful. So we talked about that last week. We talked about the cares of this world pushing out uh, godliness. And we, we used the, the uh, parable of the sower to do that. But we also talked about that there are things that God has put into our hands um, that are given to us for a proper ordering of things. 
Um, I don't know that I brought this passage up last week. It was in my notes, but I don't think I brought it up. First Timothy chapter 5, the apostle will speak about a widow, a young widow. And it says that she is living in pleasures. Remember that? And then what does he say? What immediately follows that? That she's dead even while she lives. That pleasures cannot be the thesis of our lives. The Lord must be serving him. Serving him in our calling, serving him in our pleasures, serving him in our recreation, in our leisure, in our entertainments, in our hobbies, in our avocations, as well as in our vocation. Truly, our calling as Christian must rule over all vocations, callings, avocations, uh, things outside of our calling, hobbies, habits, recreations, Downtime, uptime, all of that. And when we have that properly in place, then what we said was we're living in that kind of preparation. We are preparing day by day to meet the Lord. The last Sabbath at our back and the Sabbath before our face are indeed brought to bear in all of the days in between so that we are not putting off preparation or preparing to meet the Lord until Saturday night or Sunday morning. We're meeting with Him every day. It's like some of the old preachers used to say. It's a little bit different because of our focus on, prep, on preparing to worship. But it's, it's like some of the old preachers used to say when, when, when they said that, you know, we ought to be able to think rightly about our lives such that we might recognize that this is our last moment upon earth and what kind of stock have we taken. We're not guaranteed another Sabbath to prepare for are we? We're not guaranteed our next breath, only the last one, and that only because we've taken it. And so there, there is a way to live that is a way of preparation, and that's what we focused on last week. I want to continue in that vein a little bit today. I don't want to be too, too polemic here. I don't want to uh, impugn Uh, brethren, godly brethren. But I do want to say that sometimes it it, it appears to me that there is at least an imbalance uh, in preparationism. Now when I say preparationism, I need to define that because historically that has taken up a couple of different systems of thought. There was an old doctrine that, that arose among Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Solomon Stoddard, Thomas Shepard, and others in New England. Uh, And it was brought to seed, really, afterwards in the the Keswick theologians. And they, um, it it, it eventually came to be known as New England Preparationism. New England Preparationism is an error. um, And it wasn't only on this side of the pond that that error was taking place. There was a There was a number of different places over uh, in the British Isles where that same difficulty was being spoken of. There was was a particular presbytery that was asking a question to its candidates for ministry, and and, and the question went like this. Um, Is it necessary for a man to forsake sin in order to his coming to Christ? Is that level of preparation necessary? Well, it sounds like a well-intended question, doesn't it? But the answer is no. Because if the answer is yes, then apart from our uh, receiving the grace of God, the power of God, the power of regeneration, we're cleaning up our lives in order to be acceptable to Christ. That's a bad, bad doctrine. And there were many that didn't quite have it uh, as stark as that, that were called New England preparationists, and it ended up with a, with a very difficult time in some churches in New England where people were not, uh, they, they just couldn't believe that they had cleaned their act up enough, right? And that's the problem with works is you're, if you're really taking it up seriously, you'll recognize you can never do enough. And so it, it ended up with, with things like we would, we would call the halfway covenant and so on, that, that there were people that were attached to the church that weren't 
communicant members because, you know, oh, I don't know if I've prepared enough and so on. Well, that's bad doctrine. We understand that that's bad doctrine. Okay, but there's another aspect of, quote, preparation that is being spoken of here. And it, and it tends toward, uh, and I'm, again, I'm not accusing, but it does tend toward another ism, and I would call it, you know, pietism. That there is something that if we're going to profit from uh, the Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's preaching, whatever means of grace, that we should not expect any profit unless we have rightly prepared. Again, it's, it's not bad sounding, is it? It's not bad sounding. We do want to prepare. But beloved, what we don't want to do is make our preparation the linchpin of our profiting. We want to use means, but we want God to be active in those means. So, what I set out to do in my study for today's sermon is I, I went through four or five different phrases where the Bible speaks about preparing our hearts. The answer to the questions that we have about preparing to meet the Lord will be found in the Scripture. And they won't be found anywhere else. So let's turn back to 1 Samuel for a moment. Chapter 7. And let's take a look at how the Lord uses this phrase, preparing your hearts at the mouth of his prophet, Samuel. So we have a time of reformation here. I spoke to you a little bit earlier about the judges and how there was no king in Israel. Because there was no king in Israel, what did we see in the nation Remember that Samuel is the last judge. He comes on the tail end of the book of Judges. What do we see in the nation at that time? Is it a nation that's flourishing? No. No. Morally, it's in free fall, isn't it? There's a man who has a concubine that is abused and he cuts her up in pieces and sends her to the other tribes. And, you know, aside from the natural horror and recoil that we have from that. It speaks of the great wickedness of the nation. What, uh, what is the, the length of time of the period of Judges? Well, it's somewhere around 330 to 335 years or so. And we see this, uh, that at the end of Joshua's days, certainly shortly thereafter, the nation begins to fall off. The Lord gives them a woman prophet as a rebuke to them, Deborah. And although she is a fine woman and a prophet, she is in that position because the Lord would testify to his people that they've gone astray. Over and again, we have that A, B, C, D pattern. Apostasy leads to bondage, leads to crying out, leads to the Lord's deliverance, leads back to apostasy, which leads to bondage, which leads to crying out, which leads to deliverance, and so on. The, you know, wash, rinse, repeat over and again. But the long period of the judges is coming to an end. We're entering on the, on, the, on the period of the monarchy. No more will it be able to be said there was no king in Israel. The Lord is going to bring his man to office. And so we're heading to a, to a new era. An era when we turn away from the lawlessness of the period of the judges and Although the first man is not the right man, the second man is. He is indeed David, the type of Messiah that would come. A true, if you will, temporal Savior, speaking of a spiritual, eternal Savior to come. And so how are they to approach this time? Let's, let's hear what Samuel says. Um. What did preparation look like for this day? Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange God and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
may I say that this phrase, prepare your hearts here in this passage, does not mean we have a worship service coming, so we need to be prepared for that. Doesn't mean that at all. In fact, what it means is we have been living in an era of great decline. We have Ashtoreth and Baalim in our midst. Prepare your hearts unto the Lord. Turn away from the Ashtoreth. Turn away from the Baalim and put yourselves in your lives in order to the Lord's service. This is what preparing the heart means here. Notice, then the children of Israel did put away Baalim and Ashtoreth and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you to the Lord. A part of their putting their hearts in order was that they called a fast. Because, why? Because they had been idolaters, beloved. Because they had been worshiping Ashtoreth. Because they'd been up on the, on the high places. They had erected altars under green trees in the cool and shady places of the world. They worshiped according to their carnal fancy, what felt good to them. And that all needed to be destroyed and torn down. So they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. That is, he ruled over them as a prophet in Mizpah. He instructed them and they put themselves in order. They prepared their hearts to serve the Lord. So what did preparation look like? It wasn't that kind of preparation that we normally think of that is a preparation in order to a particular service or time. It was a preparation of turning away from what they had done before to what they would now do before the Lord. Second passage I'd like you to look at with me is 1 Chronicles chapter 29. <clears throat> Verse 17. <coughs> Excuse me. This is David speaking here. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto thee. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee. And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build, and to build the palace for the which I have made provision. And David said to all the congregation, Now bless the Lord your God. And all the congregation blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed down their heads and worshipped the Lord and the king. Let's remember that they're not worshipping David in the same way that they're worshipping the Lord there. Simply a shorthand notice here. And they sacrificed sacrifices unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. On the morrow after that day, even a thousand bullocks, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel and did eat and drink before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And they made Solomon the son of David king the second time and anointed him unto the Lord to be the chief governor and Zadok to be the priest. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. And we can stop right there. We will note here as we noted in 1 Samuel chapter 7 that there was a particular service that came up here in this narrative. 
they, they offered willingly all these things that were to be gathered up for the building of the temple that Solomon was to build. But notice that their preparation is not to that service. Their preparation is to life under their new king and the temple that he would build, gathering all of the disparate elements of the worship now together in the temple. No more altar here, Ark of the Covenant over there, everything brought together, set into its proper order, and so the people of God are to prepare their hearts to worship the Lord in this brand new opportunity that they have not enjoyed heretofore that Solomon the king would build this palace that David has provided for and that palace would have the priesthood and it would have the sacrifices and it would have the altar and it would have the ark and it would have all of the accoutrements of God's worship there. So there was a service that was performed there. They sacrificed sacrifices unto the Lord offered burnt offerings, 10,000 bullocks, 1,000 rams, 1,000 lambs with their drink offerings. But that the preparation that David prays for here is not a preparation for that service, but a preparation for what that service would portend, and that is a new life of worship for the nation. Listen to what he says one more time. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee. And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build the palace for the which I have made provision. So we have another time of preparation, but it is not the preparation of a, um, for a particular service. It is, again, a setting of their hearts in order. And this word preparation in, in, in the Hebrew, it's often translated as preparation here. It's the hifil of a particular Hebrew verb. Let me explain what that means so I'm not speaking foreign languages to you. So sometimes uh, Hebrew verbs have letters that are added to them to make them mean something different. For instance, we might say that something is... Um, um, well, here, something is established. So we might say, okay, the verb means to establish in its most basic form. But then we might add a letter onto it, and we put it in what's called the hefil. And what that is, is it's a causative. So now we no longer translate that as establish. We say that you to set your efforts to cause something to be established. It becomes a causative verb. And to cause to be established, your authorized version has translated that over and again, preparation, prepare. Remember what, uh, what Amos said in Amos chapter 4. Um, it's, a, it's not an easy chapter to read. You know, I sent you blasting and mildew and you haven't turned to me. I sent you leanness of teeth and you haven't turned to me. I've done all these things and you haven't turned to me. I sent you prophets and you haven't turned to me. Therefore, since I have done all these things, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Well, that, I mean, that, he's not coming for tea, obviously, right? Okay, but... That's the same word translated with that same causative prefix. Prepare. Get ready. Put things in order to this. You are about to enter into a new, uh, a new advancement to, to the worship of your God. Put yourselves in order to that. Prepare for that. That's what David is saying there in, in 1 Chronicles 29. Our next teacher in this will be Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 19. <clears throat> Verse 1. And Jehoshaphat the king of Judah returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu the son of Hanani the seer went out to meet him. And said to King Jehoshaphat, 
Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. And Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem and went out again through the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim and brought them back unto the Lord God of their fathers. And he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed what ye do, for ye judge not for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Moreover, in Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat set of the Levites and of the priests and of the chief of the fathers of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies when they returned to Jerusalem. And he charged them, saying, Thus shall you do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a perfect heart. And what cause soever shall come to you of your brethren that dwell in their cities between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and judgments, you shall even warn them that they trespass not against the Lord. And so wrath come upon you and upon your brethren, this do, and ye shall not trespass. And behold, Amariah the chief priest is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah uh, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Deal courageously, and the Lord shall be with the good. Once again, we have this phrase, prepare your heart, or he prepared his heart, or thou hast prepared thine heart to seek God in verse 3. We note that, that Jehoshaphat's preparation was not, uh, or his preparation of his heart was not a perfect preparation, that it was with some folly mingled with it. Although he was serving the Lord, he had uh, an affinity for the northern kingdom that he should not have had. He should have identified them as idolaters and should have remained separate. And so the prophet Jehu, not the Jehu of the northern kingdom, but the prophet Jehu, a different Jehu, rebukes him when he comes home from his time with Ahab. Remember that Jehoshaphat escaped, as it were, by the skin of his teeth, and Ahab was killed when someone drew the bow at a venture, it says. How should you go and help the ungodly? Right? Yet, says the prophet to him, uh, you have prepared your heart to seek the Lord your God. It's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Um, we'll remember that that affinity that Jehoshaphat developed with the northern kingdom ended up in his, in his son, Jehoram, marrying Athaliah. Right? That's right. And we know what happens after that when Jehoram dies. So, with all of that, notice that Jehoshaphat is a man who has said to have prepared his heart. And we see the results of the preparation of his heart, don't we? What are they? He is a godly king. He has taken the rebuke of the prophet. Right? He's taken that rebuke because why? He's prepared his heart to seek the Lord. And so what does he do? He ceases his affinity with the northern kingdom. It's too late. The damage has been done. Athaliah will come to power eventually. Okay, we get that. But what does he do in his own nation? He comes home and he begins to set things in order. He travels throughout his nation and he compels his own citizenry to return to the Lord. Did you hear that? And then what does he do? Then he makes sure that they have the civil and ecclesiastical leaders that they need so that they can remain with the Lord when they turn to the Lord. And so I'm going to give you these judges. And they're going to judge in the king's matters. If any of these, and of course these are the two supreme courts that are spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 17. These two supreme courts, one churchly, one, one civil. So we have the priests that are judging, and we also have the rulers that are judging. One is judging in the church, one's judging in the state. And Jehoshaphat makes sure that those courts are set up, provided for, 
and cared for that they can do their work in the land, that the people of God might return to the Lord and remain with him. And this all a part of his having what prepared his heart to seek the Lord. Let's look at another example. Let's learn from Ezra chapter 7. Verse 1. Now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes king of Persia. Ezra the son of Sariah. The son of Azariah. The son of Hilkiah. The son of Shalom. The son of Zadok. The son of Ahitub. The son of Amariah. The son of Azariah. The son of Mereot. The son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests, and the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the Nethanims, unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king, for upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him, for... Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. It's a great passage, isn't it? This gives us all kinds of information about Ezra, right? He's a scribe. Uh, A scribe means also that he is a teacher. Uh, A teacher is a kind of sub-prophetic office. We know he's a prophet because he writes scripture, obviously. And then also he is related, his lineage goes all the way back to Aaron. He's the son of Aaron and he's a priest as well. So Aaron, uh, sorry, Ezra wears many different hats. A prophet, a priest, a scribe. <coughs> Notice that, his, that the preparation of his heart was unto traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem to take part in the restoration. Ezra prepared his heart unto the Lord To do what? To take part in the restoration. My unique position and skill will be brought to bear upon the restoration of the worship of God and the building of the temple in Jerusalem. That's his preparation. It's not unto a particular event. It's not unto a particular service. It is unto the life that he would live in the new restored Israel as the temple is rebuilt and the worship of God reestablished. So his preparation is not for a short season, but for a very long one. So in these four examples of heart preparation, we see that these preparations were not for a particular time of worship, but as we said last week, it was a preparing of the heart toward how we live before the Lord in the whole of our lives a kind of dedicating ourselves to the Lord, a good preparation of the heart that is useful week after week in the public worship. Um, so as we say last week, so we say again this week. And this is, I think, what we, what we must bring home from the study of preparation. We cannot live lives that point us in the direction of the earth to things under the sun, as Solomon will put it in the book of Ecclesiastes to the vanities of this age and world and expect to come into the Lord's house to worship him with a short time of preparation that is at odds with how we actually live. Right? Our lives must be lived modestly regarding this world and wantonly regarding the things of heaven. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. Our lives must be lived modestly regarding the things of this world and wantonly regarding the things of heaven. I think that for many Christians and in many churches, it's taught the other way around. 
that we live wantonly in this world and modestly toward heaven. And I think the Bible presents that in exactly the opposite to us. We take heaven by storm. We refuse to let the angel go until he blesses us. We will not be satisfied except with the marrow and the fatness, that is, with the cream of the crop of heaven. We're going to get to this, Lord willing, next week in 1 Peter, where Peter will say, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And beloved, may we say it this way, we certainly don't want to content ourselves with a taste. We've been told to drink and to drink deeply. So our lives must be lived modestly regarding this world and wantonly regarding the things of heaven. We must take heaven by storm, taking up our cross daily. And this is the first and best preparation for profiting from public worship. These texts that we have looked at all talk of preparing the heart. But that is a daily or lifestyle or, if you will, that kind of of direction of our lives. That kind of preparation, not Bouncing from special time to special time. Well, that's important. That's where we started last week. I wanted to finish that thought with you. Now there are times in scripture where we do see preparation that is spoken of for an upcoming event. When the people are to meet with the Lord. And I want to drop the other shoe and bring that along as well. But... I'm going to reiterate before we go down that road. What we want to avoid in the topic of of preparation is to think that we may live just about any way. And nobody would say any way we want. But we want to make sure that we are living during the week so as to make the smaller incremental preparation that we undertake, say on Saturday or Sunday, that that is actually effective, right? If we're going to profit from, from public worship, there are places in Scripture where we see that there's something about to happen, so you need to prepare for that. Okay, we want to we talk about that too. We want to talk about the whole Bible on it. But without doing that first thing that we read of preparing our heart to seek the Lord, that second activity of getting ready for a service on the Lord's Day, is going to be much throttled. It's going to be choked out by the things of the world. That was the passage we used last week, if you remember. Okay, so with that then, let's turn to Exodus 19. Verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people Upon Mount Sinai, and thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man. It shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up into the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people. And sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. So we have preparation for a particular event here. Not just an entire life, but a particular event. Now, it is an extraordinary event, we understand. But it is an event that requires preparation. The Lord is about to come down on Sinai. This is chapter 19. You know what happens in the next chapter. It's very clear. Okay. So there are several things that they are told to do. Right? They are told to wash themselves. They are told to... Um, oh, let me, let me look at my notes. <laughs> there was a command to spend three days sanctified, or two days 
sanctified before the Lord came down upon the third day. They were to wash their clothes. They were to be ready or to prepare. That's the same Hebrew word in Hiphil. Uh, against the third day, they were told not to come at their wives. And although we have not yet seen that legislation in the Pentateuch, what this means is that they were not to become ceremonially unclean through human intimacy. They were rather to be a people separated unto the Lord. Well, I think that we can make some inferences from this that when we come before the Lord, we want also to make sure that we have washed ourselves. How do we do that? What is washing? I'm not talking about bathing children. I'm talking about a spiritual washing, right? And what is the means of that washing? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our preparation then for the event of public worship involves confession of sin. But beloved, if you're confessing your sins on Saturday night as one of the few times in the week you ever stop to confess your sins, then you're playing Christian catch-up instead of what we are required to be as Christians, preparing our hearts day by day, life by life. You understand? Is that, is, that, is that clear? I hope it is. I'm not speaking against preparing for the Sabbath. We want to prepare for the Sabbath. But sometimes we hear language that tells us that the only preparation that is required is Sabbath preparation. That's not true. Life preparation, daily preparation is involved, is commanded, and is required. And that is what enables and enlivens that weekly preparation. Let's look at Joshua chapter 3. Verse 1, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host and they commanded the people saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests the Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, this day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water Jordan, ye shall stand still. All right. So, and then 7.13 is also a similar passage. Up. Sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. And you know what happened, right? That's Achan and so on. All right, well, let's, for, for the sake of time, just bring up that we have these two times of preparation that are spoken of here for the people against a near event not a life kind of preparation but a near event preparation the first was when they were about to cross over the Jordan and the Lord was to magnify Joshua as he magnified Moses before the people and the second was when they were to gather themselves together for judgment to sanctify themselves against that difficult task of putting Achan and all his to death, right? 
So there was a near preparation, and it is described as sanctify yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Set yourselves apart unto this duty. Separate yourselves from all worldly thinking, from all other kind of thinking, and set yourselves in order to this duty. Okay? All right, now let's move on to Second Chronicles chapter 30. Just about done. Second Chronicles chapter 30. We'll begin in verse 13. And there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great congregation. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for incense took they away and cast them into the brook Kidron. And they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought in the burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. And they stood in their place after their manner, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood which they received of the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore, the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. And the children of Israel that were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with loud instruments unto the Lord. And Hezekiah spake comfortably unto, the, unto all the Levites that taught the good knowledge of God. And they did eat throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. And the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days. And they kept other seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah king of Judah did give to the congregation a thousand bullocks and seven thousand sheep. And the princes gave to the congregation a thousand bullocks and ten thousand sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. And all the congregation of Judah with the priests and the Levites and all the congregation that came out of Israel and the strangers that came out of the land of Israel and that dwelt in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. And the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. Well, what a very exciting passage, certainly. So we will remember that, th- that during the days of Hezekiah, that that is the same time frame where the northern kingdom falls. You'll remember after 722 B.C. in the fall of Samaria that Sennacherib and his forces come south and surround Jerusalem and is sent home by the Lord. So Hezekiah is the king during the same time which the northern kingdom falls. Did you read who came to the Passover? It wasn't just Judahites. People from the northern kingdom as well. They had seen their false worship brought to the ground by the Lord in his providence. They themselves, it says of them here in verse 19, The Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek the Lord God of his fathers. There were many in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom that had done so. They had done that first initial work of preparation that we've been talking about in those four movements that we've already seen. They had prepared their hearts to seek the Lord their God. So then when they came, what did they find? Did they find that they themselves were ready in every particular? Sadly, they did not. They found that there were 
these Levites, as they were looking over them, there, there were some of them that were unclean. Some of them didn't have the right sacrifice with them. Some of them had done things that were out of the proper order. And they came, can I even use this word? Unprepared to worship the Lord at that service. They were unprepared. Were they then sent packing? Were they then sent away? They were not. Hezekiah prayed for them. Did you hear that? Listen to it one more time. Listen to these sweet words. But Hezekiah prayed for them saying, The good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Of the two preparations that we have been talking about then, which one, at least in this passage, seems to rise to the greatest level of importance? Preparing your heart to seek the Lord. And beloved, in that life kind of preparation that we've been talking about, if in that kind of preparation you find that in the regular weekly preparation that you're not quite there what hope do you have then well you have the hope that you have a greater than Hezekiah praying for you and that you will be accepted though you be not cleansed according to the rule of the sanctuary if you have prepared your heart to seek the Lord those times of providential hindrance in other ways. The Lord is ready in that greater son of Hezekiah to receive you. Isn't he? So, beloved, as we come, as we think on profiting from public worship, let us remember those two different kinds of preparation and let us put them in their biblical proportion and bring them home to our own hearts such that We would, it could be said of us, truly and really, that we, by the grace of God, have prepared our hearts to seek the Lord. We have that kind of life-honoring or God-honoring life, a life dedicated unto Him, that we have established and prepared and offered ourselves to the Lord we are His. Let us not put, put such stock then in the weekly preparation such that it is stretched out of its biblical proportion. Oh, we want it. We want it truly. But we want it in proportion with how we live the rest of the week. Let us prepare for our preparation. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for what we have heard today from Thy Word. We thank Thee how that thou hast taught us what it means to prepare our hearts unto thee. O Lord, we confess our hearts are thine. We are those sacrifices laid upon the altar of thy great son, that he has led us captive to himself, who were formerly captives to sin and Satan. So, Lord, we pray that we would live according to that prepared heart. And then, Lord, we pray as we come week by week to meet Thee in the public worship that we would not neglect what we have heard here today as well, that we would sanctify ourselves, that we would be involved in those sanctifying works, cleansing works, confession of sin, turning away from other things but Lord we pray that as we come to Saturday night every week and as we come to Lord's Day morning that the work required there would be sweetly informed and made ready because we have already brought everything unto thee every day of our lives 
Deliver us then from the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lusts of other things, even those pleasures in which one might live although they are dead, that we might live as living stones before thee every day, that we may offer up spiritual sacrifices every day and those other Sabbath sacrifices on that day. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.